Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Weekly Word Podcast. I'm Chris Hout, AIM Coach, and this is episode 105. So it's been a few weeks since I've had a chance to record an episode. Um, It's been a busy few weeks, not because of work necessarily, but more because of travel. I had the opportunity and time to head over to Europe and see my family and get together with them for a big family gathering for one of my nephews. And uh, also had a chance to see some family members that I only get a chance to see about once a year. And so it was very nice to get a, a break from work and from training and head over to Europe and see family. And I brought my kids with me, which is always good because it allows them to get closer with their cousins and their uncles and so forth. So That is one of the many reasons for the longer break on the Weekly Word podcast. I also had um, the Rich Roll interview that had come out, and so I gave that a chance to sort of marinate and for hopefully many of you to get a chance to listen to as well because a lot of what I talk about on the Coach's Corner with Rich turns out to be a lot of the things and topics that we discuss here on the Weekly Word. And as usual... From the Weekly Word, um, actually from Rich's podcast, there's a lot of new listeners on the Weekly Word podcast, and so welcome. And for those of you that have been listening for a while, I know for many of my athletes, but also for many of you that have reached out, that many of you have actually caught up and started listening from episode one and have worked your way through the first 100 episodes, which to me... It is very flattering, um, but I'm always a little bit uh, embarrassed, I should say, and shy because to think that there's that much time and hours and recordings out there of my voice, mainly my voice alone, and that you, the listener, actually worked through that, that's quite a compliment and it means a lot to me. And I hope you can also see how this podcast has changed over the years and has gone into sort of a different um, space with regards to ultra-endurance, with regards to the wholesome approach of mind, body, as well as the soul, spirit, um, however you want to describe that third realm of us, and how it is a lot more driven by you, the listener, many of you, my athletes, but also you that have reached out for questions and so forth, that that's what drives the conversation in many ways. I try to really be good about answering all the emails I get, and I have a big stack of emails waiting to be answered. So I will attend to those today, and with those emails, and with that conversation, and with the in-depth understanding that I try to go through with those emails, a lot I sort of veer off onto a different angle and talk a little bit more about mindset and psychology of this ultra-endurance world, as well as what it means to us and how it does bring out a better version of ourselves. I've talked about this a lot over the last few months on the podcast, and that is that my belief with this podcast, with my coaching, with the newsletter, is to always highlight the best athletic version of you, you the athlete, you the listener, and so forth, on a day-to-day basis, the best current athletic version of you. 
Because I believe, I fully believe, and it's part of the mission of why I do this coaching and um, podcasting as well as all the training myself is because I believe that that best athletic version of ourselves, that current one, that's the important thing to remember because we can't be who we once were, maybe when we were younger or had a different approach to all this. And we can't be who we might want to be someday currently because we have to get to that. We have to train to that. We have to grow to that. The best current athletic version of ourselves, I feel, contributes a lot to the overall best version of ourselves on a daily basis, on how we interact with others, how we are with our family, how we are with our coworkers, how we are with regards to ourselves, how we judge ourselves and love ourselves and take care of ourselves internally, not from a health standpoint, but being proud of who we are and loving ourselves and standing with confidence and pride towards the day and the adversity and the struggles that we all have, that we all have in our day-to-day. And understanding, you know what though? Today I got in a great workout. I took care of myself. I spent some time in my head and listening to my body and my heart rate and my this beautiful thing called our body to move and sweat and breathe heavy. And it makes the struggle of our daily lives a little bit easier. And that confidence, that energy, that positive um, force within us on a daily basis when we get to show that best athletic version of ourselves, I believe contributes to that bigger, better version of ourselves. And that slice, I think, grows. And in the beginning, when we're just either returning to becoming athletes or trying to become better athletes, I believe that that slice of the overall version of ourselves that percentage that the athlete is in that bigger overall version of ourselves, best version of ourselves, I believe that percentage grows. I believe when we start with this training or we're new to this training, we're re-engaging with ourselves and training and being athletic, I think that's a small slice. I think it starts at 2 or 3 or 5% or 10%, 8% of our overall day and how it interacts with our mindset and how we treat others and how we treat ourselves and our family and our career and we have the energy and vitality to go through it and the positive mindset and the creative output but I think as we train and as we continue to go in this I think there's actually an opportunity to grow that percentage to have it be a bigger contribution to our overall day to have it um show itself, highlight itself, become more a part of us, and that that athletic version and that best athletic current version of ourselves becomes a bigger piece of our whole. And I think it continues to have only positive contributions from that, only positive growth. And as it goes to 25, 30, 40% of our best version of our daily selves, that that athlete comes out more and more because of the the work you put in, the patience that you show, the discipline that you show, the intention that you show in your athletic self and what you're overcoming and how you're persevering and how you're focused and how you prepare and how you think ahead and how you recover and how you think about taking care of your body. All those aspects, I think, flow into that bigger version, and because it's a bigger part of you, has net positive 
overall effects. Its tentacles, the athletic self's tentacles, seep into and work their way into all aspects of our daily lives. And there's very little of that that I think is a negative. And from that point, we also reach a delicate balance. We don't want to go overboard that our athletic self becomes too pervasive, too strong in our personality, too um, uh, um, dominating of our daily best athletic version of ourselves. Why? Because then we start thinking more about our training and our athletic self and that part of our ego wants to take more and more control and it will impact our day to day. It will have an effect on that we want to limit our time with others and limit our time at work and limit our family time because we're thinking too much of our athletic self. So there is a healthy balance. And there it, but until we get to that point, it is an amazing contribution. And I think what I was just describing is an extreme example of some of these um, outputs of when the athletic self becomes too prevalent and trying to be somebody who we might not able be able to be at our point in our lives currently. For example, if, you know, if I wanted to go back to that biggest athletic version of myself, swimming all day and focused on an outcome um, many months or even years from now with a singular mindset towards that and limiting um, my exposure to the overall bigger picture of the world and my relationships and my own professional growth as well as own self-growth and being in sort of a tunnel ver vision version that works just towards a singular goal, that was appropriate back then in my 20s, but no longer with family. And the, the fluidness that one needs to maintain when you have a family and so forth. And the fluidness you need to maintain when you might need your best professional self or your best creative self or your best family self to come forward to play a bigger role in the current environment that a big project or some family need and so forth, that that takes a bigger role and takes some chunks from that best athletic version of ourselves because life doesn't allow it. Now, it doesn't mean it goes away, nor does family ever go away, um, nor does work ever go away. Back to the three-legged stool and that concept of how our lives work. But I believe the contributions of the athletic self are constantly present and constantly can make us better overall people. So I just saw that the microphone was uh, not on. So I'm hoping that the sound quality is a little bit better now and we can work our way into the many topics that I need to discuss on this week's episode 105 of the Weekly Word podcast. So as promised, of course, we're going to dive into lactate threshold testing this week. That will be the main topic that we're going to work around. And I have a variety of emails around this and so forth from test updates to test, uh, test examples to questions around the test. So I really want to dive into that 
and with that, explain sort of what it means with regards to the lactate threshold testing, why we do it, why it's such a valuable test, what the data can tell us, and so forth. So that the next time you go to a lactate threshold test, and this is actually very important, that you not only know what the outcome should look like, and if the data is accurate and correct, that is the key. Because real simple, in a good lactate threshold test, the certain key markers should not be um, decreasing. Values can't go down as the workload goes up. And so in those cases, I'm looking to save you a lot of money with $150 to $250, in some cases around the world, $300 for some of these lactate threshold tests. And so I want that data and the understanding to be quite good around that. So I will give you the breakdown of what I usually send my athletes with what a test means. And from there, I will dive into the data points, the inflection points, how to read a test, what I look for, what it means, how long it lasts, and so forth. So that will be important. And then from there, I don't know. And I always say this because I don't know, based off the emails that I have, how it's going to flow with regards to which ones I'm going to read and what the topics are about. Because I keep these pretty much, I just put them into a folder when I get them, and then I just read them. Um, oftentimes for the first time when, when I am recording here on the podcast, because I want that to be that type of dynamic. Now, of course, I've skimmed them in order to understand to put them on the podcast and in that folder, but to really put the thought process into it and really explain it, I want that to be somewhat live or somewhat blind that I'm going into it. So there we have it. That should be episode 105 on this week's podcast. All right. Okay, so lactate threshold testing. So first of all, let's talk about what it is and what a lactate threshold really means. Well, lactate threshold is a test whereby you increase the resistance, whether on the treadmill, that would be speed, or on a bike trainer, that would be via watts or resistance on the back tire. And as you increase the resistance in equal segments, you take a blood sample, a prick of the finger and get a blood droplet and drop, it, drop that or immerse that into a lactate threshold or lactate reader on a strip that can um, give you the amount of millimole per liter of blood of the lactate concentration in it. And so from that graph, equal, in, in, equal um, increases in resistance, equal time intervals, the increase in lactate over those intervals and um, increases in resistance will give us an inflection point, a point where there's changes in how much lactate is accumulating and how quickly it's accumulating. And so this is a very accurate test because, as you can imagine, it's not about taking your age and subtracting a number and giving you a few heartbeats for, let's say, your fitness. It's not some sort of formula like 220 minus your age and that. It's a lot more specific, and it's specific to you at that current phase and stage of your training. 
Now, lactate threshold testing is quite popular among cyclists, and they do them every six to eight weeks, some even monthly. Some are looking for certain numbers in that lactate threshold testing in order to validate for themselves that they are fit and ready to race. So they might have one every week. They're just trying to hit a number of value. And it's also very portable. It requires a trainer. That's it. You can do this. You can even do it on a flat road cycling. You can even do it on a steady climb. I've done lactate threshold tests leaning out of a car as well as being the testee um, on, a, on a bike while someone is leaning out of a car um, going up um, in Tucson, either on a flat road, increasing the workload. I've done it on Mount Lemon, a steady grade going up because it's so long. You can change the effort level and the resistance there too. I've done it on a track, a cycling track, in a velodrome, and then you just increase the resistance and the wattage each round there, and so forth. I've done it on a treadmill, which is um, not as exciting as on a, as on Mount Lemon, for example. I've done them on uh, tracks, high, uh, you know, tracks around a soccer field or a football field. Um, I've done them on flat stages as in uh, a flat road or a flat dirt path where you can do it running. So you can do them on a treadmill, you can do them on a track, or you can do them on flat ground. The main thing is equal time segments as you increase the time in equal time segments, whether it's five minutes, four minutes, six minutes, or 800 meters for running and so forth, that it always stays the same, those increases, and that you can pretty reliably and steadily, measurably increase the resistance. So for example, on a track that you're increasing your pace by let's say 40 seconds per mile after every 800. So that at the 800, you get your finger pricked, you give them a droplet of blood, it gets the sample, off you go for another 800. Again, just watching on your pace, on your Garmin, on your watch, that you're increasing your speed by average of, let's say, 20 or 30 or 40 seconds per mile. Depends on where you're starting, how slow you started, and where you think you can get to. Some cases, you start these and you get faster by a minute per mile. Others, only 30 seconds or 20 seconds per mile. Depends on the athlete and the familiarity and as well as the desired outcome of the test. Which brings me to the next point. A good test goes to failure. It goes to failure because it, each data point and all the numbers give us a good insight into your abilities. By going to failure, we can see how fatigued you are. If you can't reach fresh numbers from when you did this test, not that trained, or let's say early in the season, or coming off a couple of recovery days or even weeks, then your ability to go further and dig deeper in the test is, of course, a lot higher. And you see lactate numbers that go quite high. And I'll say what high is, is around uh, above 10, what I call double-digit lactate. Very rarely do we see anything over 14 or 15. So the, that's sort of the highest end of lactate values. And so, so let's take that and say, all right, let's say the last time or when you were fresh, you took the test and you got to 11.2 millimole of lactate per liter of blood. 
And this time, um, you know, you're four months into the training and you just finished a big training block and you're just uh, you're exhausted. Let's say you test that and you only get to seven or eight before you fail, before your muscles fail at the back end, far end of the test. Well, not being able to achieve somewhat high of a number if you achieved 11 last time and you can't even get to 10 this time, often at times, not always, and a variety of other factors come into play. This is, again, exercise physiology. There's so much that comes into the play with these numbers, but it's a high likelihood that you're fatigued, that you're tired, that you need some rest because you can't get yourself. You want it. Your mind wants it, but your body is too cumulatively fatigued in order to achieve those fresher, higher output numbers. So that's why we want to go to failure. We want to know how far we can push. The other aspect, it also gives us that VO2 max aspect. It's not VO2 max because we're not taking oxygen, but we can see numbers on the far end of this. And there's different types of lactate threshold tests. So let's be clear about that too. There's tests that test for endurance and sort of the testing that I like to do. But then there's also shorter tests that ramp up the resistance and the time intervals are way shorter and quicker so that you get to those high, high, high lactate numbers and high, high, high wattage numbers. Again, for cyclists to test sprinting and to test, to test max output and to test um, how long they can hold max output and so forth. There's lactate threshold tests whereby a pro cyclist will hold a certain wattage for as long as they can and then see how the lactate accumulates quickly at a steady high wattage. So for example, let's say Lance or a pro cyclist back in the day would be riding at 350 or 380 watts. And as they increase the time at that wattage, how the lactate accumulates. That's an interesting number for the the, the doctors, as well as the, the coaches, as well as the exercise physiologists on staff. To compare to old numbers, to compare to his data, to compare to future data, future data meaning how you're going to take this training and what you would like to see happen when you do the test again. There's tests also out there where you want to see your body stay at a low lactate despite hitting a high wattage number or a high threshold, let's say, output. So, for example, if you're very familiar with a climb that you usually do or like a lot of pro cyclists do and they're in an area where they train and they um, love a certain climb and they've done it many dozens of times, I wouldn't say hundreds of times, but many dozens of times and they're very comfortable on that climb and they practice their hill repeats and their work on there and their threshold work and their intervals and their high cadence work all on this climb that's 30 to 40 or 50 or 60 or 90 minutes long. Well, then you want to start thinking, okay, did I hit a certain lactate on the best effort of that climb or at 75% of max or at 80% of max? And so I held 300 watts for that climb. It was a pretty easy effort. Yes, for pro cyclists, 300 watts on a climb is pretty comfortable. Um, and what my perceived output of 300 watts at this climb at the certain effort and so forth was truly what with regards to lactate. So it might feel tiring at 300 watts and um, your output, but then you take the lactate right after and sure enough, it's a very low number, let's say 
1.2 or 1.6 or below 2. Well, then again, the coach, the trainer can say, the manager can say, well, he's tired because um, at that output, clearly the body is not working that hard, but the perceived exertion of putting forth that work was so high. And so there's an imbalance there. So we need to figure that out with the recovery and the proper training, training stimulus. So there's web, uh, so many ways to use this information of lactate threshold testing and the portability of it and the ability to do it anywhere. You need a little tester, Lactate Pro it's called. You can get them online um, and you can, they're as big as my palm and the test strips are a little bit more expensive. They, and you don't wanna waste those, but again, um, it's a small expense when you think about the performance of some of these elite, elite pro athletes and spending so much time training and wanting to know that that data is accurate and correct and applicable and trainable, right? Trainable so that we can have the, the, out, the, 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 the response, the stimulus that we're looking for. And so that's why it's so important to continuously test those guys. Now, for most of my athletes and for all of you listening, testing every 12 to 16 weeks is plenty because it gives you time to properly apply the zones and the data that you're looking to adapt, stimulate, change, grow from, get stronger from, get fitter from, and then test again. All this obviously happens in a lot more accelerated version for pro athletes and those athletes that train 30, 40 hours a week. Yes, 30, 40 hours a week. And so therefore their testing frequency is a lot higher because the recovery and the stimulus and the training time and the overall percentage of things and sleep and nutrition and strength work and, you know, altitude training and all that, all that accelerates the process. And so therefore the data needs to be updated more frequently. So you're testing every 12 to 16 weeks. And so then you want to go and set up a lactate threshold test. You call the local facility, a university often, and with an exercise physiology department often can provide it. Some local bike shops, high-end bike shops might be able to give you some advice whether you can find one. You can also email me <laughs> for um, my database and uh, if there's one near you. And so there's a variety of ways to find lactate threshold testing. And don't get me wrong, there's plenty of locations where it's not very um, accessible. It's hard to find a location. But then also when you're traveling for work or when you're out and about with me with regards to vacation or family or however, and you are maybe in a bigger city or in a location where they can test, might be something to consider doing. It's such valuable input and it is a good tester and a good facility. It is like they're giving you a little mini exercise physiology class because they'll explain what the test means and why and how to train on it and what this data means and how you can improve and how they determine things and what's actually happening in the body when you are being tested and why these outputs are showing the way they show. So it's super valuable. But I'm going to try to tackle most of that here today with explaining it. So you call to set up a test and a lactate threshold test and usually they'll ask you, would you like a bike test, a run test, or both? Now, and this is something I've run into some confusion about, and even some many who might not agree with me. 
But um, based off the thousands and thousands of tests I've seen over the years and have had people test, as well as the testing I've done, the data of a heart rate test on a bike versus a run is very different. Now, the inputs on how you test it is, is different. And while the two sports are different, again, the heart doesn't know. And so if it hits certain workloads and effort levels, it will still have a lactic acid accumulation similar whether on the bike or the run. Right? And it's hard to do this with jumping jacks because how do you increase the resistance effort of jumping jacks? But there's many ways. In the pool, we do lactate threshold testing by increasing the speed of how we're swimming. And again, at the end of 100 or a 50 meter, depends on the time that we want for the thing. Usually it's hundreds. Um, they prick our ear, take a blood sample. Same thing, lactate accumulation over time as the pace increases. And we even did them high end enough where we were in the Olympic Training Center and they have one in Colorado Springs as well, where you, there's a light beam, a light, um, a, a, a row of lights every five to 10 yards. I remember it was every 10 meters in, in the pool and swimming and in Germany. And then we would, it, you could set the movement of the lights down the pool and back every so that it would, it would shine, light up at a certain pace. And so we didn't even have to think about our output. You just set the dial to, you know, 130 pace for 100 meters. Then you go to 120 pace for 100 meters. Then you go 100, 110 pace for 100 meters. You know, and there were guys definitely doing, you know, uh, up to 55, even touching 50. On uh, The light would move away from them, but they were faster than 55 on the 100 meters, but slower than 50. But right in there... Um, despite having started so slow, but it's the accumulation of time and fatigue, but that's all part of the test. And so, yeah, the heart doesn't know. And so the heart rate line, the values as you increase resistance continue to go up, but that line is pretty steady. Those inputs, those values of lactate, with corresponding heart rate, the corresponding heart rate to those lactate values stays pretty steady. It goes up about seven, some cases five, but usually seven to 10 beats per stage. And so whether you're running or cycling, the heart rate graph looks almost identical. You can put them on top of each other. Now for running, the heart rate's a tick higher. In highly trained runners and cyclists, the differential is pretty small because the movement of their arms and overcoming more um, to move across ground, overcoming more gravity when you're running creates a higher heart rate. It's a little bit higher of a tax on the body, but it stays steadily five to seven heart rates above the cycling line. And so you know, the values just stay equally as high, uh, five to seven beats higher throughout the, the graph, throughout the chart for running versus cycling. So therefore, back to the original question, you, you, I usually tend to say cycling test is plenty. It'll give us our heart rate numbers for and zones for the running, and we can get a lot more data 
that we need for the inputs of cycling, wattages and heart rate and the specificity of training, as well as you can push pretty hard on a bike, whereas on a treadmill or measuring your output at 800 meters after having done some close to max effort 800 meters is pretty hard. Your, your form starts flailing and more inputs could be compromised, not off, but they're just compromised slightly. Whereas cycling is a very controlled, steady environment. And so we can continue to use that data and hit high, high numbers. So that's why I usually recommend a cycling threshold test, but a running one is good too. It depends on the facility and the tester. This is key. They need to know what they're doing. Many make mistakes when it comes to a lactate threshold test. They don't know their protocol. They don't often do them. A lot of locations and a university have spent a lot of money for a good metabolic cart, it's called, where you can measure metabolic rate, as well as heart rate, as well as VO2 max, as well as all kinds of good data. And don't get me wrong, I'm not um, necessarily opposed to a good VO2 max test, but the VO2 max test goes based off of the data of what your max is and what you achieve in that test as a VO2 max. And then they extrapolate from there what the values of your zones are. So you're back to a percentage of max versus immediate exact inflection points of the lactate of where it changes, where it has um, increased, at what wattage individual to you versus percentages of max to you also, which definitely it's individual to you, your VO2 max. And there's a lot of data in there too, with regards to economy and how you can improve that. But I am a fan and definitely partial to lactate threshold, because again, portable, individual to you, inflection points are more accurate and specific. We can manipulate the test better. We can stop halfway through. Once we have the aerobic threshold, we don't often cases need max or lactate threshold. Um, we can test, like I was saying earlier, if you're tired, not from going to max, but based off of perceived exertion and all those things. There's so many different things that I like without having to put a mask on your face and limit your breathing, which not, lots of people struggle with too. And being able to put forth their best um, version of their athletic fitness while having a mask on their face that just bothers them. Now, of course, blood does similar to people, but a good tester, again, will make it one prick and you won't, you don't need maybe even another one for the entire test. Um, maybe two or three, but those you barely feel. And again, we just need a droplet. We don't need a pint of blood here. So um, again, good testing facility will be good about this. So then it becomes a question of the protocol. So you let's say you found a facility, you say you, you want your cycling test, you found see that they actually know what they're talking about, they're familiar with how you want to go about it. And then the protocol, the protocol meaning how will this test be put forth? And your ability of their ability to put give you a good test is critical to the data. So you want four or five or even six minute stages because the longer you are at a stage, the more your body settles into 
Remember, episode 30s somewhere on the podcast, homeostasis, steady state. And oftentimes the body and the heart rate will lower and settle in at a longer, a little bit longer stage, four to six minutes, and give you more accurate values than the first minute or two or three where you you feel perceived exertion is very high once you hurt, hit certain wattages or paces, as well as you just don't feel settled. And so once you settle in, you actually like, okay, I can hold this. So four to six minute stages. And then depending on, um, again, the facility, if they're, they're good on what they do, they're open to doing many stages, meaning they'll start at 100 watts and maybe increase by 25 watts every stage or 30 watts, but start at 100 versus some places start at 150 and they do every 30 or even 40 watts. Well, remember, the more data points you get as you gradually increase the resistance, the more we can pinpoint where that lactate goes over certain um, thresholds. So if you get data at 100 watts, 125 watts, 150 watts, 170 watts, 100, uh, 200 watts, 200, those are all little points where if nothing changes on lactate, that's good. We get more insight on how your body was reacting to those wattage increases, to those, let's say, on a treadmill pace increases. But if we go from 150 to 190 to 230, a lot can happen in those 80, 90 watts. And next thing we know, we don't know truly where the inflection point is. We just know it went up a lot from 150 to 190, let's say from 1.5 millimole to 2.2. Well, where was the real jump? And where was steady before that? What's zero like? Where was the steady lactate? What was your resting lactate? And at what point did it get to 1.5? Was it always at 1.5? Did you wake up this morning with 1.5? So again, a lot of early lower number values are quite helpful. So now we've gone through the length of the um, intervals, four to six minutes. We've gone through the wattages, 25 to 30. I always prefer the lower number and more data. So that means we start at 100. Maybe if you're um, newer to cycling or very light, you start at 75 watts. And then we... You know, every, let's say, six minutes, we, we start the clock at 100 watts at, at um, zero minutes at 100 watts. And then at six minutes, we go to 125 watts. And then at 12 minutes, we go to 150 watts. And then at 18 minutes, we go to 150 and so forth. And each time at the end of that, we take the lactate values. We get a grip and or get a, a blood driplet and we get the values we need. So what are those values? Well, those values go anywhere from zero at the start, when you're just starting and there's very little resistance and very little work and stress on the body. And it goes to, like we said earlier, to about you know, 14 or 15, it could go that high. Oftentimes between nine and 11 for good max values. And so over time, so every six minutes or 12 minutes, 18 minutes. So as many stages as you go, this could be a you know, 45, 60 minute test. If it goes 10 stages, you're getting, you're out there, you're riding for 60 minutes. 
And so here we are, we're getting those values. We're getting that droplet of blood and it is put in the Lactate Pro and that strip gives us a data input. And that is what the lactate accumulation or lactate content, lactate millimole per liter of blood. And so that could be anywhere from the first few stages, 0 0.5 or 1 or 0.8 or 1.2 or 1.1 or in some cases even closer to 2. Something is often telling us something that is something's off if at, you know, 75 or 100 watts, you're already showing two. Usually what we like to see is a couple of stages, a couple of values that are pretty low and pretty flat. Flat meaning there's no increase in the lactate values as the wattage increases. So let's say you start at 100 watts and at, then six minutes later you go to 125 and then six minutes later you go to 150 and each of those values after 100 the stage after 125 the stage and after 150 the stage it stays pretty steady at 1.4 1.4 or maybe 1.5 right that's no significant increase 0.1 so that's that level and that nice flat lactate line that we want in the beginning because those wattages are easy enough that they don't have you changing the value of lactate, the, the, the content of lactate in your blood, that's always there. We always are producing lactate. We always have some lactate in our system. So 0, 0.0 doesn't really exist. And not, we also got to remember that lactate is not necessarily a bad thing in the, the blood. Actually, it's very important and needed. So Therefore, some of it, 1 or 1.5 or 0.8 or something around there, is normal. So as that wattage increase, now that we're 24 and 30 and 36 minutes in, and we're 175 or 200 or 225 watts in, each stage where we're taking that lactate value is slowly, the, the lactate is increasing. It's going to 1.8, to 2.2, to 2.4, to, to 3.2. Um, so you can see the lactate curve, it's curving, is increasing as the wattage is increasing. Now, this is what I was saying in the intro. What's important here is understanding that as the resistance increases, for lactate to go down is nearly impossible, right? It doesn't magically flush out of your system nor despite you're still cycling and the wattage is increasing, the workload is increasing or stayed the same. So for it to go down means that something is not right on that sample. It means it's compromised with sweat. It's compromised with accuracy. Something is wrong. And so a lot of times with a facility or a location that doesn't do a very good job with testing, I can see right away or any coach can see right away, well, this, this value isn't, doesn't, isn't worth anything because it went down. And if there's a variety of those, that test is meaningless because, again, we don't know the lactate values to chart it properly to get a good, accurate lactate curve. And so when you see that in your testing, you see that lactate has gone down despite the resistance going up, the workload going up, 
you can either, either live in the moment if you're that present for the testing, say, no, 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 you need another sample. This one's compromised. My lactate can't go down. Or you should at the end say, well, this is this test wasn't very accurate and I'll need to do it again. I'd like my money back or I'd like to do this again in two, three weeks and set up a new time. So that's very important because again, wattage, resistance, pace, speed has increased. The amount of lactate in your blood can't decrease. It doesn't go anywhere. So um, it does flush out eventually, but not during the stage, during the test. It doesn't go that quickly. So keep that in mind. Now, one bad number, you can probably extrapolate the other the value of that stage around it. But if they're constantly bad numbers or choppy and up and down and values are dropping all the time after going up, we don't know nothing. We know we don't have enough data values. So keep that in mind. And so gradually the lactate is accumulating as the wattage is going up on our test. And then we're getting to the bigger numbers, 280, 300 watts, 325 watts, and the values of lactate according to those stages goes way high, eight, nine, even 10. And at some point failure will come. And failure is when you can't turn over the pedals properly anymore. And we're not talking 40s cadence. Usually once you dip below 60s cadence, that's it. But you really got to dig and you really got to try and really got to put forth your best effort. These tests are hard. They suck. Excuse my language, but they really suck because you have to dig so deep. And remember, you're already, you know, six or seven times six minutes or five minutes into the test where the wattage is increased. So you've already got an amount, a cumulative amount of fatigue in there. And so then digging deep and the time goes by very slowly when you're just staring at it. And so it's hard work. So we also want to get heart rate during these stages. So usually what I do is I get heart rate halfway through the stage and then I get it at the end of the stage right before I take the blood sample, the driplet, the droplet of blood. And that is because I like to compare the two heart rate numbers in case it was a weird heart rate reading late in the stage and I can compare the two and they give me a good idea. And again, data is all helpful. So then you get to failure. We have a lot of values. We have a lot of data points. We have a lot of lactate data points. And so, and we have heart rate data. So we chart those two right on an x y axis and you get a nice curve and you get a nice line curve for lactate and a nice line for heart rate and that is the basics of a lactate threshold test so what does all this testing and the data and the chart and the graph and the heart rate line really mean what are we looking to get out of this test well let's go real deep into the basics here first. As we see the increase in effort wattage resistance, our body is working harder to maintain that output, that speed, that wattage. And heart rate goes up because it needs to pump more blood oxygen to the working muscles. And so that's why we know why heart rate goes up. Many are familiar with this aspect. But lactate, the accumulation of lactate in the blood, 
is something we are less familiar with and we're looking to understand. As I said earlier, lactate is always present in our blood. But as our effort increases, more and more lactate accumulates. As that lactate accumulates, it's also being flushed out again. It's being used by the system. And then it reaches a point of clear um, demarcation where the increases are starting to go faster than what can be flushed. It's not running over. It's not spilling out of the bathtub yet. But the lactate is accumulating 1, 1. 1.4, 1.6, 2.1, 2.3, more than it can be flushed out. Early on, when the resistance is still relatively lighter, our body can still handle it, flush it out quite easily, and therefore the lactate numbers don't increase because your body continues to process, flush out, work with the lactate that's being uh, generated, accumulating. But at some point, it can't process, flush, use the lactate that is accumulating quickly enough, and the numbers start increasing. And there are two inflection points with that. One is around two. Now, many exercise physiologists and lab um, coats, as I should say, um, will say, well, the two inflection points are two millimole per liter of blood and four millimole. That's a very common approach. And it is over many, many thousands of subjects and tests, a very good insight or um, value to start at. When you hit two, it's approximately your aerobic threshold. When you hit four, it's approximately your anaerobic, otherwise known as lactate threshold. But for some people, aerobic threshold isn't necessarily two. It could be 1.8. It could be 2.2 or even a little bit higher, 2.6, 2.5, 2.7 even. And for others, also their anaerobic, their LT threshold, LT, lactate threshold, LT, is also higher than four or lower than four. It's all relative, again, individually to you. So again, we want to avoid just placing two numbers onto the picture that's been generated by the test, two and four, those are the numbers. And we want to understand more individually how your body is giving us the inflection points, not what some textbook or general ideas place on your test. And so that's sort of the real basic approach to the lactate threshold curve. But understand this, your body uses only one compound to make muscles contract, and that's called ATP. There's only a very limited supply of ATP in your body. So you're required to generate your own in order to keep the muscles contracting and expanding, pedaling in this case, running as well. This is done via the aerobic and anaerobic energy pathways. These convert molecules of fat, protein, and carbs into ATP. Via the aerobic energy pathway, you can convert all three of these into ATP, fat, protein, and carbs. And it's very efficient. One molecule of fat will produce 169 molecules of ATP. One molecule of carb will also produce 
through the sixth, 36 molecules of ATP. Whereas the anaerobic system only burns carbs, right? We know this. We know once you cross the threshold, you're burning primarily glycogen carbs. And one molecule of carb in the anaerobic energy system only produces two molecules of ATP. So we were talking 169 molecules of ATP with one molecule of fat with the aerobic energy system, along with one molecule of carb producing 36 molecules of um, ATP, all that in the aerobic. The anaerobic only does one carbs and then only one to two. One molecule of carb only produces two molecules of ATP. And, you know, it's a very, very different engine. <clears throat> but it is really important to understand that both the aerobic and anaerobic energy systems are working all the time. Even when riding very, very slowly, your anaerobic system is providing some energy. It's what I like to use um, as an example with like a Prius or a hybrid car. There's always two engines going, and you guys have heard this on the podcast before. There's always two engines going. There's a hybrid on uh, the hybrid. There's battery and fuel. But when you're going very slowly, it's primarily battery, aerobic energy system, very efficient using the fat and the carbs that we talked about just now. But once you start going faster, you're going to start using more and more of the gas engine. It doesn't mean that you're not using any gas when you're driving really slowly and on the battery power, but it is basically like 90% battery power and a little bit of gas here and there. And the same thing with our energy systems. As you speed up, it provides more energy, the, en the, the engine. This is because the anaerobic pathways are able to convert fuel to ATP a lot faster than the aerobic ones. So just like our, uh, our example of a hybrid car, Prius, um, as you speed up, the engine needs more power. So it's going to give you more power via the gas, not wait until the, uh, the, the battery gives you that horsepower. And the same thing with our body. So on the one hand, the aerobic energy pathways are extremely efficient. They burn very cleanly and a lot of energy comes with those fat and carb molecules but it's a slow process. You have to be going slow in order to take advantage of that slower process of that aerobic energy system. But once you speed up and need more effort, it quickly shuts down the fat burning energy system and just goes on pure sugar, pure glycogen, pure carbs. It's like um, in, in cars, you add that fuel additive, right? That, that, that injector fuel. As you get faster, you get that extra clean burning, fast burning carbs because they convert fuel to ATP three times faster than the aerobic pathways. So if you imagine two pathways running down and merging into a single engine, as you get faster and faster and faster, you increase your effort, it gradually shows, shuts down that one pathway and pulls all its fuel out of the one uh, out of the anaerobic one. So that gives you that understanding. But the big problem with the anaerobic pathway is that it is super inefficient. It guzzles a ton of gas, right? 
So in that aspect, as it's guzzling all that carb, glycogen, sugar, just pulling through that one pathways, there's also a byproduct. And that's called lactate. But as we said, lactate isn't necessarily bad because lactate can be used by the aerobic energy system as fuel. And aerobic energy system, even when we're going fast, is going a little bit. And so it's using some of the lactate as fuel for the aerobic energy system. But you have to be well-trained. You have to be super efficient. Your body has to recognize what it's doing. And to do this well, to take the lactate and burn it as fuel. And the more we train in the right zones, aerobic energy, aerobic zones, the better it gets at burning lactate as fuel. And that brings us back to the original comment that I was saying. At those low efforts, low resistance, low wattages, low speeds, it's not, I was calling it processing, it was using the lactate, that's that. That means the body is efficient there to use lactate as part of its fuel for the aerobic energy system. So it's flushing it, it's using it, it's re um, en entering it back into the system because it's using it as fuel. But once you start going a little bit too fast, too high of an effort, or you're not trained to be there, efficient there, it can no longer use the lactate as fuel and it accumulates. If not, right, as that lactate accumulates and stops you, it's, it will stop you from pedaling. Once you have too much lactate in your muscular system, in your site, in the blood, that's what you feel. It can't properly contract. So the muscle will expand, but it's the contraction that it can no longer do efficiently because they have accumulated the lactate. And that's what you, when you feel the burn, when you're running or mainly cycling, when you feel that burn, that's your, your muscles not able to contract properly. So in order to make us ride slash run faster, we need to improve our ability to use lactate as fuel. That's basically the whole concept of what we're doing. That will improve our aerobic energy system. We want to get you more and more efficient and familiar with driving just fast enough to use a bit of gas, but mainly on battery power. That's what it is. That should all make pretty good sense. So many times in the first few stages of a test, we can see a pretty steady flat line like I was mentioning earlier. The lactate levels are low, usually around or under, clearly under two millimoles, but sometimes people start a little bit higher and there's other factors going on there. But we want that line, that lactate line, to stay flat as long as possible. The longer it stays flat before it curves up the lactate line, the more fit we are the more we can handle the workload, right? If we can do 200 watts at low lactate accumulation, lactate values in our blood, it means that our body is still using the lactate as part of the aerobic energy system and we're not too taxed by it. The heart rate stays low and muscularly, from a lactate accumulation aspect, we can withstand the workload. 
And so as we increase the wattage, as we get fitter, if we can go from 200, then maybe to 225 and so forth, that's a lot of speed and extra power where it's costing us very little. Flat lactate curve, as long as we can, as long as how far we can train it to stay flat before it starts curving up like a hockey stick. Hockey stick, level, 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 and then turns up late, hopefully, right? We want it to turn up as late as possible because that means we've increased a lot of wattage stages without it increasing dramatically. Now, some of you might say, well, why not use the two and four number? Well, because what we usually look for, what I usually look for, what many experienced testers and exercise physiologists and um, coaches look for is the relative accumulation of lactate. So if you started off with everything being level, level part of the hockey stick of the curve being 0 0.8, 0 0.8, 0 0.8, 0 0.8, let's say four stages and it stays low, 0 0.8, 0 0.8, maybe a 0.9, maybe a one. So those are very small increases. But then if it goes from 0 0.8, 0 0.8, 0 0.8, 0 0.8 to let's say 1.6, well, clearly that's an, a jump. And I like to use 0.5 millimole from base, from par, from that level line, in this case, let's say 0.8, as, okay, if it jumps up by 0.5 or more, clearly that's our aerobic threshold. So in this case, if you have a bunch of 1.0 values or 0.9 values or 1.1 values and it goes up 0.5 or 0.6 suddenly in one stage, right now quickly the curve tilts up, well, that's an inflection point. That's clearly um, a point where it's no longer um, using the lactic accu lactate accumulation in the blood as efficiently. And it is clearly a sign. And so that is a 1.6 number or a 1.7 number. So it's not 2.0. So we don't want to use the 2.0 number. In this case, relatively to you, the individual picture is that your aerobic threshold is actually at 1.6 or 1.7. I've tested many times where I'm, my aerobic threshold is around 1.5, 1.6, just because I start very low with 0.8s or 0.7s. So that's something to keep in mind. So we want to keep that lactate flat, show the signs that our aerobic energy system, our aerobic system, system is using the lactate being produced. And with many beginner endurance athletes, beginner triathletes, beginner runners, beginner in general, who have trained a little bit too hard on easy days and too easy on hard days, these low lactate numbers only happen at very low power or speed or resistance levels. And as soon as any type of work increases, quickly the lactate goes up because they haven't been training low enough, zone two, low heart rate enough to become efficient at using the lactate that's accumulating. They just hit every phase and all the time all over the place. And so that's what becomes quite dangerous, not dangerous, but not effective in our training as we go forward. So the problem often then is that it's only happening not only at very power, low power levels, but as soon as you start cycling uphill or need to produce decent power, your anaerobic pathways are stronger than your aerobic ones and produce more lactate than you can use. Therefore, this excess lactate becomes, becomes lactic acid and stops you from pedaling any harder for any longer period of time. 
So that should make complete sense. As soon as you have to put forth any effort, lactate accumulates. It becomes lactic acid because it sits in the system. It's not being flushed. And eventually, you're going to have to slow down. It might feel good for 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes, but eventually, you will have to slow down. So our aim is to increase the ability to use lactate, therefore delaying the accumulation, right? Using more battery, less gas engine. As we increase that ability to use lactate, we'll be able to push more and more power for longer and longer and ride faster. On the run, this means we can run at a higher turnover with a stronger push off to run faster and faster for a longer period of time. That's lactate threshold testing, basically, in a nutshell. It gives you all the understanding around it. So the key is training you at levels just above and just below where your aerobic pathways can use all the lactate being produced. By doing this, we gently teach it to become better, also known as lactate buffering. And the training is also easy enough that you can do it day after day after day after day without fear of overtraining. That's the beauty of Zone 2. Now we're back to Episode 5 of the <laughs> Weekly Word Podcast. That is why we're doing this. That's the Maffetone method. That's Zone 2. That's aerobic base training. That's building the house. That's building the foundations. That's rebuilding the engine from scratch. All the different terms I've used over the years of this podcast are caught in that. The key is training you at levels just and above. Uh, just above and just below where your aerobic pathways can use all the lactate being produced. This is why aerobic threshold is so important. We need to remain below this threshold in order to achieve our goal of becoming more efficient at using lactate. And that's why it's so important to do this test accurately. And that's why VO2 max and a percentage of the max to give us aerobic isn't exact and detailed enough for what I'm, I'm looking for. That's why sometimes we don't need to test uh, too high of a resistance or test to max because as we're coming back from a long training ride and we feel really tired and we think we're, we're, um, we didn't, um, we trained really hard and then we do a quick test and shows that we're at low lactate levels and actually we were burning fuel for the last three, four hours, five hours on the ride or two, three hours on the run. It also gives us insight into how fatigued you are and what energy systems you're using. And this becomes also important on all the individual ways to teach and use that test to our advantage to make sure we're using the limited training time that we have as efficiently and as effectively as possible. That's how it works. That's how it all works. We need to become efficient below that aerobic threshold so that we will be stronger and faster at a lower effort, resistance, wattage, speed. And we need to spend a lot of time there to build that foundation that I've talked about. So now that we have this understanding in what the test means, let me go into answering some questions that you've had for on the show. On the show. <laughs> Gosh. I take myself pretty seriously with this. <laughs> um, some questions you've had with regards to testing and what it all means in your emails and go through an example of a test. Okay, so email question one. I've listened to you on the podcast. 
Um, you mentioned anything that you'd like to know with regards to testing I should bring up on an email. I would like to know more about what you look for in the test. I think I just answered that over the last hour. I know it's used as a performance markers and to determine my highest intensity to train race before hitting the wall. No, that's not what it's used for. And I just explained that. It's used for an aerobic um, energy system and where those um, inflection points are and where to train which stimulus. Let's be real specific here. Below um, aerobic threshold, we're building the engine. We're creating more mitochondria. We're getting more efficient in using lactate as fuel. We're delivering oxygen to the working muscles, but at a low enough intensity so that a variety of physiological effects are happening from building mitochondria to expanding the network of capillaries exactly in order to build, um, to deliver more oxygen to via a wider network to the working muscles. We're um, creating blood plasma and volume because our heart is pumping blood consistently and using blood so our heart gets stronger and wants to pump more blood via with oxygen thick um, blood to the working muscles and so forth. That's all helpful. So it's not used to, as performance markers to determine my highest intensity to train. No, but, but before hitting the wall, no, we're trying to get more efficient with our aerobic energy system because it is so efficient with one molecule of fat giving us 169 molecules of ATP because of one carb giving us 36 molecules of ATP. That engine is the one we want. And quite honestly, you can't improve um, because of what you eat. This brings us back to the nutrition component and all the um, high-fat, low-carb diets. You're not going to improve how you utilize your fats unless you train there. It's not a question of what you eat. You have plenty of fat on you for thousands of hours of exercise via the aerobic energy system. So eating more fats isn't going to help you use more. The only way you improve your aerobic energy system is by training at the heart rates and the power levels low enough so that you are utilizing those fat calories. And there's plenty in your diet in our day-to-day -day and stored on our body for that, for many thousands of hours of exercise. So thinking that you're going to improve that via diet is not true. Now, you do improve that when you're lighter, leaner, have a different body composition. That's a different approach and discussion altogether. But back to that physiology that I just described, in order to convert to ATP, that one molecule for 169 um, uh, calories, right, is going to come from an aspect of what you already have on your body, in your body, in your system. Not because you're eating a certain way is it going to be more likely to grab that fat. Not true. Complete misnomer. So, um, but how do, does my test tell me I've improved? Well, like I described earlier, your test shows you've improved by the length and how long your lactate levels stay low as the resistance improves. The higher the wattage while maintaining a low lactate number shows a better sense of fitness because you can use more, you can remain engaged with the aerobic fat burning, more efficient, more economical energy system, battery power, um, 
at a higher wattage speed effort resistance. And the higher that goes, the better. You can now do a 56-mile bike ride at a power level that is really not taxing the body, nor the muscular system, nor your energy system. And you can get to the run just as fresh as when you started it because the lactate levels are staying about the same. That's pretty straightforward. And I've also answered the last, the next question, how do I train to increase my lactate threshold? Well, once again, I'm not interested in an ultra endurance and endurance training to improve our lactate threshold. I'm interested in improving your aerobic threshold. I don't need to improve how my um, glycogen burning, sugar burning, carb burning engine goes, because that's going to be very limited in my 5, 6, 7, 10, 14, 20, 30 hour event. And so therefore, it's not going to help me that much if I improve my LT, I want to improve my AT, aerobic threshold. And again, just a reminder, there's A, capital A, lower E, capital T, right? There's AET, aerobic, uh, uh, anaerobic threshold, A, lowercase e, uppercase T, otherwise known as LT. And then there's AT, which is aerobic threshold, the lower one, the easier one, that first increase sign of lactate accumulation. Now you're saying, Chris, we never discussed what lactate threshold is. Lactate threshold is that point at which you spill over, the bathtub runs over. And so the lactate has accumulated so much in the system and can no longer be processed that now it's accumulating in your blood, it turns to acid, because it's not being flushed, processed, used. And therefore, it is that point where now eventually you're on a timer, because eventually your muscles will not allow you to will not allow to contract effectively, and you will feel the burn and eventually have to slow down. That's LT. That's the spillover point. Now you're producing more than the body can tr clearly um, process flush use. And so that accumulation, that acid, that spilling over into the system is eventually going to cause you to slow down. We don't care about that point because at no point during an Ironman, half Ironman, um, marathon is a, is a different conversation there. Um, but any endurance, ultra endurance event is absolutely nowhere near that point. And the fatigue is what creates the achiness, the soreness and the muscles from doing the work and not the effort level. We've talked about this plenty. So that answers that first question. Um, next, hi, Chris, I had a blood lactate threshold test done this weekend on a treadmill. So therefore, here you go. We had a treadmill. Would you mind looking at the data and tell me what zone ranges you would recommend? I really enjoy your show and perspective on training. I'm a distance runner and your advice helps me has helped me regain a lot of fitness I thought I'd lost after years of stress fractures and time off. Thank you for everything. Here's the data from the test. So again, if you guys want to maybe write down or chart this, but this is how it works. She started at a pace of 930, then 9, 830, 8, 741, 713, 638. So you can see gradually that there was um, not the same increase in speed, but close, you know, 8 to 741, 741 to 713 is... 30 second window, and then 713 to 638 is a little bit more than 30 seconds. So pretty consistent. And here we go. 
lactate 2.0, Now, those are the numbers. First off, max number 9.2, I would have liked to have pushed her a little bit further to see if she can break the 10. But 9.2 is pretty good for max value. We'll know that in the future with regards to her fatigue and her ability to generate leg turnover at those higher numbers. She was at a heart rate 180 then. The other points here. Starts at 2.0, then the next phase was 2.0, and then it goes to 2.4. So not quite 0.5, but clearly, since the next number is 3.3, um, that is the uptrend. And she even writes here, break point. So she must have had somebody at the lab or the testing help her with her zones. So it starts pretty high. 2.0 and 930 pace is not quite what this is how I would interpret it interpreted <laughs> how I would interpret it if she was one of my athletes I would say that um, I would like to see a little bit lower lactate to start I'd rather see that at 1.6 and 1.6 and 1.6 versus right away 2.0 and oftentimes that means she's not quite rested coming into the test. Oftentimes it might mean something else is going on, maybe some sickness, something in the blood with regards to um, virus or, or um, uh, antibodies. It also might mean that her fitness levels to um, go at 930 might not be quite um, there yet. And so maybe she needs to start slower at um, 10 and 1020, let's say, just to get a baseline value. It's also always interesting to get a good number um, early on to start before you even start the test. To have your tester take your lactate before you even start, just at rest, to see what your at-rest lactate was. It's a good number to know. So, but yeah, so flat, 2.0, 2.0, flat, and then increase. So there we go, 2.4 lactate at 8.30 pace. So clearly there, something is happening. Now the speed in this case is enough to show an increase in lactate. Not necessarily spilling over, not necessarily not being able to be processed, but just an, a significant, the first significant increase in lactate. It's accumulating, but ever so gently. Below four, many of us would like to say that it still can be processed, that it still can be worked, that it still can be used. But um, it's clearly something, hey, pay attention here. So basically, her zone two would end um, a little bit below that. So in this case, her heart rate went 145, 150, and then at 155, that 2.4 value, 830 pace, um, is a bit too high to use as the top of zone two. So I would probably say it's around 152, so 140 to 152 or 150 even to be conservative would be her zone two. It's safe there, 2.0, both values, nothing too taxing and just getting more efficient there. And then her zone three moves from that, you know, 150, 152 value to about 162, 165 value to create that buffer zone, that in-between zone, that gray zone where you're not really improving your ability to um, use lactate as fuel, but you're also not improving your ability to go hard enough and have that threshold work in order to pull your all your values up. 
Something I just said there is new. Oftentimes, we do high-intensity work in order to move everything on the chart higher. VO2 max work, zone 4, zone 5, and VO2 max work are short and explosive and powerful, and they raise all the ships on the chart. They raise all the values on the chart. But it can't be done that effectively for very often and many times a week. And it's usually just a little bit additional stimulus across the board to handle sprints, to handle climbs, to handle a surge, to handle rollers, to handle um, you know a, a quick start of a swim or a run or a race. And so you say, well, why not train there all the time? One, because what I just said. And two, remember, if we're raising the entire chart, if we're raising all ships, values, data points on the chart, we're not changing the curve. We're just, change, we're just increasing the level of them. In order to change the curve, to keep it flat longer, we need to stay on that low end. And so doing high-end speed work makes us more efficient, economical, um, powerful at those high-end numbers, and so that makes our time at zone two feel more fluid, more connected, more at ease, and the body can exhale and absorb the zone two work better because we had some blowout time, we had some differentiation, we had some clearing the pipes type of aspect. So... So this is in, a, in this case, this is a very valid test. None of the values are going down. 2.0, 2.0, 2.4, 3.3, 4.2, 5 .7, 9 .2. So this is a good test. I would probably say zone four starts um, around 165, 160-ish, 165-ish heart rate. And um, around, you know, a little bit faster than eight minute mile pace. And that's where you start charting. Again, until I put it in an X, Y axis and chart all the values and then go look at sort of how the curve is moving and where the points are, inflection points, it's hard to give her exact zones, but this is how I would look at it. So next question. We have another lactate threshold test. Hi, Chris, I've appreciated you answering questions of mine in the past and love the podcast. Got my lactate threshold done today. Would, my, would you mind taking a look at the data and letting me know if you agree with the zones? Also, I don't think, I didn't think about this question for the person testing me, but the test was done on the bike. How would you translate these numbers to the run? So a lot of this I've already answered. So test values. He started at 130 watts, bike test, and went 160, 190, 220, 250, 280. So in this case, we only have six values. I would like to see a little bit more values. Again, I would like to see an at-rest one. Second of all, 30-watt increases um, really puts you into an elite cyclist category. I would want to make sure that you are good enough cyclists to start at those bigger jumps, and I'd rather see you start at 100 and go more stages, more data, more values, more points to chart on the graph. This is a case of something being not right. He starts at 2.6 millimole, then goes 2.7, then 3.9, 5.0, 6.8, 10.2. So good that he saw double lactate values, double digit lactate values, 10.2, but the never settling in of his lactate values, 2.6, 2.7, 3.9 for the first three stages, shows that the aerobic energy system is not very well developed. There is not 
a low below 2.0 value even at 130 watts there's a lot of work to be done here in this case and these are the emails that i send back to athletes when they've tested and i'm saying listen we're going to have to build this engine from scratch you need a lot of work i haven't even opened the attachment here where the um, facility where the tester must have done the zones but i can see already on this that most of his training needs to be below 125 heart rate his um second value his second value was 160 watts 125 heart rate 2.7 millivolt it's way too high for that low of a wattage um, and those numbers start way too high as well so we really need to develop a brand new engine where even at 130 watts tons of cycling time there that low i would even say most of his training if he's not on wattage needs to be below 120 heart rate which is hard. That means any hill, he's basically stopping or he's out of his zone too. Um, and maybe some intervals at 125 to 130 heart rate. But I would never look to see anything over 130 heart rate at any point in time in this guy's training, probably for a good 8 to 10 weeks. So to recap here, high lactate numbers to start unless he's super sick or just got done with a, a round of antibiotics or something's wrong here these values are too high so we need to build that aerobic energy system back to our fundamentals at 2.6 then 2.7 at these low wattages the fact that there's already so much lactate floating around in the blood means even at these low numbers it's not being used as full fuel it's quickly accumulating the next value from 2.7 is 3.9 almost at that 4.0 universal number that many apply in this case that's already his lt because it is such a significant jump and then 5.0 and 6.8 so he's spending too much time training too high too hard on easy days and not easy enough on hard days because uh, not easy easy enough on easy days and not hard enough on hard days because he can't maintain good work for very long with these high lactate accumulations so it's this big circle of non-improvement so let me open the attachment here um okay interesting with regards to the coaching system that he's using and not because i have anything against them but let's make sure that the zones are applied correctly so he weighs 165 and he's 73 inches tall so again very low power numbers given that he weighs 165 that means any uphill he's already slowing down heart rate zones i'm trying to see what he put it in here um for him zone two oh my lord oh well, yes sorry i was thought that was i would even be way more conservative on this i would not even hit says here heart rate zone for him he says the testing shows that the aerobic power threshold is 170 don't agree i think it's lower than that because 170 means um he was at 3.0 millimole <laughs> Not, not really a good number. That's too high for any aerobic value. And even though it starts at a high baseline, 2.6 and 2.7, I'd still pull back. I'd rather have you go too easy and develop an even bigger, better aerobic energy system than mess with this being too tight, too close to the values that 
put you on the level that you're not improving. Because I'm pretty certain that if you train at these numbers, you are not going to have the improvement in your endurance and your long ride and long run ability that you might be looking for. Depends on what you're getting ready for. If you're getting ready for an Olympic distance race, you can use these numbers. His FTP, functional, uh, which is also known as LT or AET, it's 225 watts and 160 heart rate. Let's say 225 watts. Yeah, that's also above 5. Point, so that's probably 5.3, 5.5. Well, we usually say that that's at 4. So, yeah, um, these this, this data is based off of relatively the chart, right? So this is a good example of where we start high, 2.6, 2.7, and go high. So we're saying, okay, because the chart, the, the hockey stick moves like this, we or the curve moves like this, there's no real hockey stick, there's no real handle to this hockey stick since it quickly curves up already on the second stage. Um, this is an example of saying, okay, well, this is how the, the, the curve looks for this person. So if you look at the curve, the heart rate zones are based off of this. True, and it could be identified like that. But I would argue to the tester, to the coach applying this data, that we need to also understand and look at why it starts so high. 2.6, 2.7 at 130 and 160 watts is ridiculously low. A high lactate, excuse me, at a low wattage. Um, and I'd be willing to say half Ironman race wattage here is around 130, 135. Um, if he were to go out and ride 112 tomorrow, it would average out to about that. And those things don't lie. So I would not use these. Sorry, but I would not use these zones. I would use different different distances. Now going down in the test, I see Mike is doing an Olympic distance try and he wants to find out his heart rate zones. Well, so you can push the effort a little bit here. And I'm not going to read the whole explanation of the test here because um, Olympic distance makes it different because you're only going for um, a strong effort for about two and a half hours. So you can work on a lot of LT time because you're not going to run out as quickly at those levels um, because your event is short enough. Now you do have to fuel, you do have to settle in, you do have to train effectively around that. But these values, um, I would still, I would still stay at the numbers that I was re recommending because if you go about this training for an Olympic distance, even a shorter distance event like this, even a sprint, you'd say, well, why would I have to train and build the aerobic energy system? Well, I would rather train more time and again, what we've been saying, going super easy on easy days so that I'm super fresh and um, explosive and powerful and connected to do the really hard work, zone four, zone five, um, VO2 max work on the hard days. And that's going to raise my tolerances and thresholds better than if I train a tick too hard on easy days and therefore don't have enough and I'm not mentally and physically as engaged and impatient and ready to chomp at the bit for the hard days. I want that differentiation. I want the track days on the run and I want the interval days and the high intensity spins efforts and high watt, watt intervals to be really hard and I need to be fresh and grind my teeth and get through it effectively on those days in order to have that bigger power, better tolerances, 
for when I race those shorter distances. Um, and to finish off, he also followed up with a quick question. I thought of one other question. The person doing the lactate test said I should have should focus on Z2. Well, he said long rides of three plus hours around 140 heart rate, even lower. I agree with that. I would go uh, focus around 130 heart rate or, you know, actually 120s, but said I should go in fasted and don't, <laughs> oh, Lordy. but that I should go in fasted and not really eat much. Obviously, you agree with doing lots of zone two, but what are your thoughts on doing it fasted to stimulate fat utilization? I think I answered that pretty effectively. Can you go in fasted? Sure. But it's not going to change the ability of your body to use fat as fuel, right? Um, it does mean that you feel lighter, that it, you don't necessarily have the same hunger pangs because, again, you're using fat as fuel. You're going easy enough that you don't feel the same way. But no, you first got to improve your body's recognition and ability to turn on the fat burning engine at that 120s heart rate for this person, and then build up the lean muscle mass and the body composition and the metabolism that knows to turn on that switch. That's through training, not through diet, not through fasting, right? And remember, fasting, when you keep that in mind, and now I got to get my facts straight, and Emily's not here to, for me to quickly run it by, but um, fasting or, or fuel sourcing, especially from a carb standpoint, I'm not sure on a fat standpoint, but it goes from the liver, uh, it goes from the bloodstream first and then to the liver. So whatever you have in the bloodstream from your last meal is what will be used first, I think. And therefore, in most cases, fasting isn't going to necessarily help it. It's still going to pull from the same source, whether you ate or not, because it has the primary easily um, available stores first. And that is not via food. It's going to be from the meal yesterday or last night that you're doing in the morning. So keep that in mind. And if that's wrong, I will follow up later on on this podcast in order to make sure I have my facts straight when I run it by Emily. All right. Um, I hope you're getting a pretty good idea about what lactate threshold testing means and how. I think I answered most of it in the full description. Hi, Chris. Been listening to the podcast for the last couple of months now, ever since I saw you on Rich's podcast, or as I call him, Richie. Um, I've started your from your first podcast. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for being so patient. And I'm steadily working my way through about episode 32 at the moment. Wow. Well, we got some growth to go. Um, it changes. <laughs> really good podcast, Chris, and I find it very useful. Anyway, I have a question. You talk about zone two, Z2, and I've been predominantly in Z2 during the base phase of a full Ironman training plan for the last 12 weeks, and I moved to build phase one this coming Monday. This was sent in late April. Sorry that I'm late. I did a LTHR test on a treadmill on the 27th of February, LT, lactate threshold heart rate test. On a treadmill, 27th of February, he wrote this on the 26th of April, that's two months previous. Set the machine to 1% incline and ran at 14 kilometers an hour for 30 minutes and took the average heart rate for the last 20 minutes, which was 162, and it pushed me to my limit, so I set up my heart rate zones based on that number, okay? I did, exact, I did exactly the same test tonight, same machine, same speed, same incline, etc. Average heart rate was 154. Great. So uh, 
eight beats lower, which I can't quite believe, but I, what I do, what do I do with the result? I didn't push myself to the limit during the 30 minutes as I thought at the time, based on the test, it would blow my lungs out, but it didn't. You're getting fitter, you're getting more economical, efficient, and you use less tax on the body to show the same result. Now, this is a different type of test, and it's not one I usually use, because exactly what you're saying is what happens with a lot of athletes. On the heart rate tests, and on a lot of steady state tests, 30 minutes at max effort is really hard to do. Really hard to maintain the mental and physical engagement on something like a treadmill or a track for that long. And that's why I don't like it. I like the five by one mile test that I do. And I even like different types of testing for shorter intervals, um, four minute best effort stuff um, with two minutes rest and things like that. Or, um, you know, so where you where you're able to break it up mentally. Otherwise, your body will shut you down because it's sending signals to the brain at all times saying, I can't maintain this. This is not realistic. We still have 28 more minutes. We still have 20 more minutes. And it can't comprehend the effort over the it's protecting self itself, right? There's a mechanism, there's self-governing, a governor in our bother, body um, that doesn't let us go to that limit. Not because we can't, of course we can, but it doesn't function like that if it's not trained for that, if it's not trained to be at the rivet at max effort for a long period of time. And that's a different type of training. And for a lot of people who run half marathon, marathons, 5Ks and 10Ks at the elite level, it's not necessarily the training, it's the mental game that keeps them from being able to push forth that effort, that controlled on the edge of the blade for that long to go just hard enough, but still be able to carry themselves out there for 30 minutes, 35 minutes and so forth. So it's a different pro approach. I put that number into TP and my zones are really impact a major shift to lower zones, yes. Yeah, absolutely. If your heart rate's lower after the test, it will push the zones a lot lower. Do I use that number and set my zones off it or do I retest and blow myself up? Well, more data is always good, but I would use the lower zones because as I said earlier, I'd rather always, always um, err on the side of zones that are too easy versus a tick too hard. You can't do any damage there. You can't do any damage by training too easy. And I know there's a lot of, um, not controversy, but conflicting thoughts around that. Well, if you train too easy, you're wasting your time. Not really, because in this case, you're getting ready for an Ironman. And those hours will create the fatigue. That volume and time will create the fatigue, not the workout itself. That's what I like to make sure that people understand with ultra endurance and endurance training in that level, at that level is we're different than most athletic um, exercise physiological outcomes. We need to go long and strong, uh, not long and far, long in time, far in distance for many days or many hours in a row. So therefore our training needs to be different and it makes it um, confusing in a lot of ways when you read materials or hear about how others train, it's totally different. Getting ready for a two to three hour event, four hour event is completely different than going six, seven, 10, 13, 14, 20, 30 hours. So different events, different training, different stimulus, different fatigue, different intensities, different prescription. So hope I answered that. That wasn't really a uh, LT test. Um, 
Let me see if there's another one in here. Here we go, final question of the day. And it's a full chart again and should help. So, hi Chris, you just sent this re recently. So I'm almost caught up in the LT aspect of this. And again, please send me questions on this. If you're confused or if, if something I'm saying contradicts something that you're familiar with in other aspects, I'm gladly willing to discuss and talk about it. My name, my, my word and how I go about this is not the only way. And there's many ways to get fitter and skin the endurance cat, for lack of a better term, discussion. Um, but what I go about with this training and my approach and the approach of zone two, it's not my approach, but the, the, a variety the variety of different ways that come at it, I believe makes it somewhat an approach I can call my own. But the part that makes th me confident in this approach is again, we want to be able to train consistently over time. And in order to, because that's going to yield the most results, consistency over time, um, turtle versus hare approach, right? fitness and having a base level fitness that you can take on almost any endurance adventure once you pivot to the specificity of that. And by keeping things easier, zone two, by getting more economical and efficient in your motions of your sport, whether that's jumping jacks, rowing, cycling, stand up paddling, running, trail running, climbing, hiking, all that has an aerobic component to it. And that aerobic component is with the one we want to expand. So there's that. Then secondly, the injury likelihood stays very low. And again, that allows you to remain consistent in your training. Your fatigue levels, excuse me, are different. So therefore, you're able to finish your workout, return to daily life. We all went pro in something other than this sport. So we can't be fatigued, shelled, exhausted out of it after these workouts. We want to return to the other parts of our lives that are more dominant in our, in our day, definitely athletics, athletics is not our dominant part of our day. And therefore, again, keeps us motivated, keeps us out there, keeps us consistent, keeps you um, in good standing in favor with family and career. Because all that, if, you're, if you come home from a session every morning and you're shelled at work or tired at work or yawning at work or not really into it, it's going to impact you. If you come home on weekends and you worked out so hard and the effort level, and you're just fatigued and lack of sleep and all that, and you come home from a workout on a Saturday morning and you're done by noon after your three or four hour workout and you're a useless blob the rest of the day, well, it's going to impact your family life and your social and personal life. So all those components put together, consistency over time allows for this approach to happen. And that's why it's so important for me to me that you guys have this perspective of how to go about this training. What am I doing consistently over time? Am I going on vacation? Okay, I'll do consistently something, a little something every day because I just wanna stay consistent over time. All right, last question. Thank you kindly for the time you took on the podcast to answer my previous question. I have another one that I think others may be interested in. I recently took my first lactate threshold test on the bike. Good call. Protocol called for starting at 150 watts. Oh, I'm worried without looking at the data. That's, again, starting that high, you need to be a pretty high-level cyclist because I will say that 
Um, usually, and not to blow smoke up my own butt, but usually I start at a 150, and usually my aerobic threshold is around 300 watts. Just so that you guys have a comparison, um, over the years of my triathlon years, my aerobic threshold was 300 watts, my anaerobic, my LT was 360, 370-ish watts. Not a lot, the, the LT. It's because I never spent any time there, nor did I have any interest in training that. But being able to ride 100 miles at 280 watts without it impacting me significantly, again, slightly below aerobic threshold is where I trained and rode and got efficient, so slightly below 300 watts. And I weigh 173 and I'm 6'2". So um, that allowed me to have the energy to run the marathon that I'm capable of, to run the marathon that I know I could do based off of training and fueling and strategy and so forth, which oftentimes meant I was running a 302 to 310 marathon. And so that's where my training would be based upon. But again, so starting at 150 is a pretty high number. Um, and raising watts by 20 watts every three minutes. Three minutes, again, short window, but we can work with it. Um, I have attached my results, if you have a minute, in which the tester found my LT heart rate to be 145, FTP to be 228. These numbers are far off from what I'd see on my field testing. I've done three bike and two field run field tests this season. For the bike, I use the Sufferfest app. The 4DP test, I don't know that. Um, and for the run, I did a 30-minute TT and took the numbers for the last 20 minutes. That's that test again. Don't do that test. <laughs> Sounds awful. <laughs> I mean, I do have some of my athletes do a seven-mile test, um, best effort. But that's different because they've already been working with me for a year or so, and they're familiar with the pain of it and the output and what they need to do. But I always start them with the five-by-one. You get that minute, and you can reset your brain and mind to Again, put in that best effort. Plus, it's a lot shorter and less painful and more easily replicable. Anywho, my question is, the lactate test always... My question is, is the lactate test always the number to go off of? Well, I just did a lot of that description in this podcast in the last hour and a half. Um, every other field test I have done has my LT heart rate between 163 and 167. My measured FTP on both peg test, tests and modeled in WKO4, yes, I'm familiar with that, is 255 to 260. These numbers are far off from what I got on the lactate test. All right, let's take a look before we make it too complicated here. So um, first value, 1.6 at 150, then uh, 1.8 at 170, then 2.2 at 190, and okay. Then 2.8, to 4.1, 6.8, 9.8, 12.9. Heart rate, all pretty steady. Now, he sent me the, the chart. Looks very nice. It's a good test. It's a valuable test. Why? I can see it validated with a very steady heart rate line. You can, I can take a ruler and run it through all the points of the heart rate line, and it'll give me a straight inclining um, line. So that means the data, how your body was responding to the increase in wattages and lactate is consistent. Nothing completely off. Nothing weird. That is the first validator of the test. Two, you got to a high lactate. I like that. That's pretty impressive. Three, 
starts at low lactate levels, 1.6. Like I said, I would have rather have seen values below 150 because if at 150, you're at 1.6, what would 100, 120, 140, 160 have shown us, right? That would have given us a flatter line to start with and really validate the next increase in lactate accumulation, which 1.6 to 1.8 is not enough. It's only 0.2, so it's still level. But then the kick up to 2.2, which is 0.6 over base, 1.6 was base, and then to 2.2, we use the full average of values, um, not the last number, 1.8 to 2.2. We don't use that. We use the, the baseline number, which if we drew a line between the 1.6 and the 1.8 and extended it back to zero or 100 watts, it would probably be around 1.6, 1.7. So 2.2 is 0.5 or 0.6 over base. Bingo, that's your aerobic threshold. It's pretty clear. Now, if you run a line from your test and you connect a 9.0, 6.8, and 4.1, basically your values of 230, 250, and 270, clearly that creates a line. That's your zone four. So 4.1, and this is what I was talking about earlier in the podcast about how when you chart it, and you run lines and trends, you can see the zones more clearly. So if I run that line from 9.0, 6.8, 4.1 through those values, it'll chart down, that's my zone four, which means 2.2 to 4.1, not quite is my zone three, which means 2.2, 2.8, and let's say 3.8 seems to be the next trend line. If I run a, a line through 2.2 and 2.8, it will extend out to probably about 3.7. That will be the end of the next trend, which is zone three, because that's at a different angle tilt than the previous line. And then the final line being the flat line between 1.6 and 1.8. That's how I would look at this test, chart it out. So to close it out, that would mean that zone two is somewhere around uh, um, two point, uh, I would end it at 2.0 since the increase in AT is at 2.2, which means conservatively, I would start zone two or top out zone two watts at probably 180 and uh, start at, you know, 140. Um, and which looks like 180 is about um, 140 heart rate. Um, I can't see the, the test values here to give it a um, um, number. So what did they put in here? Um, endurance zone, they gave it 138 to 171. I would not do that. I would even be more concerned. But yeah, no, I said 180. So yes, this zone is correct, 140 to 170. I would use that. That's and 119 heart rate. Yep. Tempo zone three, I would use 120 to 140 here. And it looks like, what did we say? 3.8 is basically the line. So I would use, yep, 228 looks right. So yeah, these values are correct. These values are very correct and very well done. Whoever did this test um, was clean test, good values, good numbers. Um, again, I would like to just see them use more of the test strips and provide more data early on. That's what many labs do as a mistake. Get more data early on. Start at 100 or start at 120 and get that flat line first before so that we can see the trends. So, all right. Well, I think that gives us enough examples and ideas and insights into the lactate 
threshold testing. There's a variety of more questions in here that I will answer in our in my list of email questions, but I think this will do it for the lactate threshold test and values and interpretation and meaning um, of this Weekly Word podcast. Okay, that will be it this week for the Weekly Word podcast, episode 105, and I think we really covered all aspects of the lactate threshold testing. It's actually sort of fun to have a single theme for the podcast this week, and I will dive back into all kinds of different topics and emails next week as I come back for 106. Until then, have a great week of training, of contributing to the better version, the best current version of yourself, and allowing the athlete within you to come alive, to contribute, to be a part of who you are, be a part of your day, and allow those tentacles of the best athletic version of your current self to sort of work their way into the rest of your day. And having the energy and the positivity and the care and the insight and the confidence of what being an athlete on a daily basis can bring to you. So have a great week. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for all your emails and comments and updates and insights. And from there, we'll dive back into it next week. Thank you.